Amen and amen. Well, if you would please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Psalm 119 and verse 105, which is the Hebrew. Letter N. With the Word of God open before us, let's pray together. Lord God Almighty. We come this evening to your word again, and we bless you for this glorious poetic meditation upon your word and our duty to keep it at the forefront of our hearts and our minds. We pray this evening, Father, that you would guide your servant, open my lips, that my mouth shall show forth your praise, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, Lord, you would grant to us. Where we cannot, you would help us. And where we will not, Father, you would have mercy upon us and change us. And we offer these prayers, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's Word. Please take, your, please take heed how you hear. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, it's no surprise, I think, again, to find the psalmist in trouble It seems the psalmist is always in trouble. He's experiencing what Matir calls the harsh realities of life. And that's one of the reasons why I love the Psalter. It's such a a, a real book, as they would say in our day and age. It's, It's honest. It's open. God has one son without sin, but no sons without suffering. We all walk through this world through a veil of tears, We are the brothers and sisters of the man of sorrows. And so it's no surprise then to find the psalmist here again finding what you might call a cacophony of calamity. 
darkness, distress, danger, and devices, sneaky devices designed to trap him. Darkness, it's implied in verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You don't need a lamp or a light at, at noonday. You need those things at nighttime. When it's dark around, you feel enveloped and surrounded in the darkness. And of course, we don't really know much of darkness here in America. The light pollution from our cities is so vast, we can hardly even see the stars in the sky. And you walk outside and everything glows orange and yellow at nighttime because of the street lamps and so forth and so on. But you've got to remember back in these days, the days of the psalmist, when you left the city, a city is a lamp on a hill, a light on a hill, everything else was pitch black, darkness. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face often when you're in the thick of it away from the city, and that's metaphorical for the psalmist's life. He feels surrounded by darkness, and it's come in perhaps like a flood, and maybe you feel like that this evening. You feel the enemy's come in like a flood. Darkness surrounds you, and it's, you, the, the way ahead is not entirely clear. And you don't know what to do, what choices to make, where to go, and also in the darkness there's always that nasty thought of, of um, something hiding in the darkness um, that could be terrifying, um, frightening. Um, it can be a terrifying thing to meet something jumping out at you in uh, the darkness. And then also the psalmist is in distress you see that there. Where am I? Verse 107. I am severely afflicted. I am afflicted unto very most in the Hebrew. Very most. And it's bad grammar, but it makes stark reality. Bad grammar in English, but not the Hebrew, you understand. But um, I am severely afflicted. The, the Hebrew word for affliction is a very intense term denoting humiliation. It can also determine, it can kind of stand for someone being violated sexually. And it generally describes the kind of treatment designed to break somebody down. Um, Hagar, you remember, was afflicted sorely, the same word, by Sarah, not one of Sarah's finest moments, of course. Um, when she persecuted Hagar, now pregnant with Abram's child, at her own suggestion, Sarah's, but she endeavored to humiliate and break Sarah down, and that's the, that's the, 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 the psalmist experience. I am severely afflicted, and it covers everything from somebody in school or someone at work bullying you, hounding you, trying to get you, all the way through to being kidnapped by ISIS or some Islamic fundamentalist and being put in stress positions, tortured and humiliated, stripped and so forth. That kind of idea. It's a terrible word, and it describes the psalmist's terrible situation. Darkness, distress, and then danger, verse 109, I hold my life in my hand continually. To have one's life in one's hands means you're only a step away from death, a mistake away from disaster, one wrong move, and it's over like 
the bomb disposal technician trying to decide between the red wire, the yellow wire, the orange wire, the green wire, the blue wire, and the black wire. And he's going, oh, and, and he doesn't know which one to cut. And he's just, his, his life literally is in his hands as he's shaking with his pliers toward one of the wires. Darkness, distress, danger, and then devices. He says that there at the end, um, verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me. They're laying a trap for me. Spurgeon, who's been so helpful in this particular part of the psalm, says, hunters set their traps in the animal's usual runs, and our worst snares are often laid in our own ways. By keeping to the ways of the Lord, we shall escape the snares of our adversaries. For His ways, God's ways, are safe and free from treachery. So, to, to, um, David has a sense that someone's out to get him, trying to trap him. It's a terrible thing. Perhaps you've been on the witness stand before in a courtroom, or perhaps an even worse stand. You're under accusation yourself. You're the accused, and the, the barrister is trying to trip you up. It's a nerve-wracking experience when all of your words are being parsed. And they're trying, to, um, they're trying to back you into a corner and have you trip up and say more than you mean or more than you wished you'd said. And they're always out to get you. And the psalmist felt like that. The wicked, his enemies were out to get him. And of course, as Christians, whether that's our situation before men, it's always our situation before the devil. The devil is always out to get us, to trip us up and to deceive us and to lead us astray from the ways of God. A cacophony then of calamity, darkness, distress, danger, and devices. So the question this evening is what to do? How do you respond in those moments? And there's really, as I read this psalm and read the verses, I have this sense of kind of two movements. It's a wonder to behold this man respond. He doesn't react. He responds to see how calamity leads to commitment. He's in, the, he's in the teeth of danger, on the horns of a dilemma, and yet he commits himself to God and to his ways. Calamity leads to commitment, and then commitment leads to confidence. As he commits himself to God and to especially the path of obedience, he finds confidence growing in his heart as he does so. So first of all, let's see how calamity leads to commitment. The psalmist begins by, by literally binding himself by seven. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it, he said. I've made it secure. I've locked it in. And his oath is to keep God's righteous rules. It's always right to do right. And you never have a right to break one of God's commandments. You never have a right to give somebody else the right to break one of God's commandments. It's always right to do right. And the psalmist here is committing himself. He's binding himself by seven, as it were. It's a very strong metaphor. He knows his heart is prone to disobey, especially under pressure. And so he swears an oath, as it were, that he would obey God. He's, he's saying, even though I'm in trouble here and there's a cacophony of calamity all around me, I'm not one of God's fair-weather friends. I'm not the kind of person the devil suggested Job was. 
that when, you know, it's health and wealth, Job will bless you, and when it's bitterness and, and death, he'll curse you. And Job wasn't like that, and the psalmist is saying, I am not like that either. He, he binds himself by seven. That begs the question, should a Christian take an oath? We haven't got too much time to delve into that this evening, but suffice it to say this, that the Reformers thought a lot about that because a lot of them came out of the Catholic Church where they'd taken vows of poverty and chastity and so forth and so on, and, and holy orders, and, and they were very concerned about breaking their vows. And as you might expect, Calvin and Luther and the others came out, and they really warned against taking rash and foolish oaths. You know, an oath is an act of religious worship, and as such, it should only be done in those solemn moments that you feel compelled to do so by God's Word and by God's will. It should be your duty to make an oath, like maybe in a courtroom, or baptism vows that parents make, or church membership vows, or marriage vows. We shouldn't make them willy-nilly. Our yes should by and large be yes, and our no by and large should be no. Uh, and Calvin did warn, though, in his institutes that if you, if you do feel compelled to make an oath outside of general religious worship, you should be sensible. The, the, the oath should be, limitable, should be attainable, and it should be limited, right? Um, I'll never eat um, kettle-cooked chips again. It's stupid, right? Um, but if you have to make an oath like that, at least say, for the next month, I'll never eat uh, kettle-cooked chips, because ever again is a long time, even in country and western songs, right? And, and so, you want, to be, you want to bind yourself with something that you, that's attainable and that is limited. Um, there are certain things beyond our powers, and it's rash and presumptuous to take an oath in that direction. And if the oath is sinful, if you make a sinful oath, like if you made an oath maybe because you felt guilty about something, and so you vow, as I knew one teenager uh, vowed once, and I used to know they vowed because uh, they had committed some sins, so they vowed they'd go to the mission field. Well, the heart behind that vow was not, was not driven by a conviction that they felt called to the mission field. They're kind of offering God a sacrifice. I'll sacrifice my life in the mission field if you will forgive me this sin. Which is a totally, which is which is an oath that runs completely contrary to the gospel, right? You're, 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 the only reason God needs to forgive you your sins is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you come to God pretending He needs an, He needs an extra reason to forgive your sins, I don't know that you're swearing off chocolate for Lent or something. If you bring that to God as an additional reason to forgive you your sins, that's that's worse than a bad reason. It's a blasphemous reason and it's contrary to the gospel. It's a wicked oath and you should not keep it. It is sinful to keep a sinful oath, and so forth and so on. So, it takes great wisdom, and we shouldn't bind ourselves foolishly. But what the psalmist here is saying, I'm committed, Lord, to do what you say, to keep your righteous rules. I'll never get in trouble, Lord. I'll never be in the wrong if I keep my feet according to your word, though, as he prays later on, he needs much help to do that. He also commits himself to guard himself from common um, uh, from common and obvious, shall we say, slippery paths, the, the path of carelessness, forgetfulness, and heartlessness. He promises to bind himself, to guard himself against carelessness. He says, um, 
The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. It's so easy when people are out to get you to think that you can play footloose and fancy free with moral rules like that time when I told you before about that doctor who's out to get me in the Hospital and Donald, and she was scheming behind the scenes to trip me up and, and bring me down. And I'll never forget the Christian doctor from Canada, the senior doctor in the hospital, one of the senior doctors, pulled me aside. I went to him and asked his counsel. Didn't know he was a believer, but he was a believer. I'd just gone to the hospital, and this man said to me, you know, you're going to walk into the doctor's room, and this lady's going to be gossiping about you, and the room's going to go quiet, and you're going to know that she is slandering you, and you're going to feel, um, feel a very great temptation to do to her as she is done to you and to slander her and try to justify yourself. Don't go down that road. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Fear God and depart from evil and let God protect you. And I thank God for that counsel because it was so wise. When people are out to get you, you often think there's an exception. I've got to defend myself, even if it means I outrun God's law. And the psalmist here um, resolves to keep himself from carelessness and also from forgetfulness. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. He, he keeps his law front and center, God's law front and center in his mind. It's very difficult to remember something you're not determining or you're, you're not trying not to forget. There's too many negatives in that statement. But you know what I mean? Um, you've got to keep, you've got to know God's law and keep it in your mind. Um, like Ezra, he studied the law in order to keep the law and to teach the law. But the order was keen. He, he, his first reason for studying was obedience, not to be an instructor, but to be an obeyer, a doer of God's commandments. And forgetfulness and carelessness can get many men in trouble. Like David in the cave, when Saul was there um, using the men's room, I suppose you might say. And David was in the back of the cave, and Saul didn't know, and Saul's in a moment of, shall we say, um, vulnerability. And David goes up behind him with a knife, and his friends say to him, kill him. God has delivered him into your hand. And it looked as if God had done that. But David remembered God's law. This man is still the king, and I have no right to lift up my sword against the king. And so David said, I'll not kill him, but I'll just show Saul that, that I could have killed him. And so he cuts off the end of his garment. And the moment he did, David's heart struck him. Because he realized to take up a knife against the garment of the king was little different from taking up the knife against the life of the king. He had still attacked the king, God's anointed property, and his heart struck him, his conscience bothered him. And so David goes out and confesses to Saul, but it was a, a mixture of carelessness and forgetfulness. And how easy it would have been for David to ignore the law and to sink the dagger into King Saul's heart. Again, Spurgeon says, trouble makes many a man forget his duty. And it would have had the same effect upon the psalmist if he had not obtained quickening, verse 107, and teaching. He needs both verse 108. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. Give me life. Teach me your rules. 
Trouble makes many a man forget his duty, and it would have had the same effect upon the psalmist if he had not obtained quickening, life, and teaching instruction from God. In his memory of the Lord's law lay the psalmist's safety. He was certain not to be forgotten of God, for God was not forgotten of him. It is a special proof of grace when nothing can drive truth out of our thoughts or holiness out of our lives. I love that. He was certain not to be forgotten of God, for God was not forgotten of him. It's like the very last verse of Psalm 119, probably my famous verse of the whole psalm. I have gone astray like a lost sheep, but seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your law. You couldn't say, I've kept your law. You couldn't say, I love your law more than gold and silver. He said that earlier in the psalm. But the very last verse of the psalm brings him down to Monday morning reality. Lord, I've gone astray again, like a lost sheep. And my only plea is that you would not forget me, because I have not forgotten you. That's wonderful. So he guards himself against carelessness. This is his commitment. And forgetfulness and also heartlessness. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Now, that word inclined, lovely. Um, it, it's used, you use it to lean up maybe a ladder up against a wall, right? You get the ladder up to, the, to its balancing point where it's standing, and you push it, and it inclines against the law, the wall. It leans against the wall. And the psalmist is conscious that his heart often inclines the wrong way. It inclines away from God and away from the ways of God when it should be inclining towards God. And there's times the psalmist will say, incline my heart towards you and not to dishonest gain, right? So, he needs God to, God to do the work, inclining his heart. But here, the psalmist is actually resolving to do that work himself. Now, he's not saying, it's not as if he can. He's not, it, 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 it's not as if we always need God to be working to incline our heart. He's working in us to will and to do, as Paul would say in Philippians, for his good pleasure. And we work out our salvation, right? And so we're inclining our heart, pushing our heart towards God, like one of those heavy ladders that you've, you kind of you, you pull on, on a rope and it extends, and it's kind of there balancing, and it could fall, and you've got to push it up onto the, against the, the side of the house, right? And there's times when it feels as if you're the one and that you're the only one doing that work, inclining your heart to the Lord. But of course, all the time, if we're successful, God is the one helping us and inclining our heart towards Himself. But there's a time for both. We're praying, Lord, incline me. And then there's a time for us to wrestle our heart down and push our heart out towards God. And we, we, all, we, we all know those moments in life when we're inclined 
Maybe to the second bowl of ice cream or the second bowl of kettle cooked chips. And it's as if the packet of chips is calling out to us or the ice cream come to Papa. And we're going, oh, yes. And it's like, it's so beautiful. <laughs> I want it. And then you've got you to wrestle your heart down. No, heal, away from the fridge. And uh, inclining it uh, toward your resolution. That's the idea. And we need help. Alec Mateer says about this verse, the rejoicing heart must be linked with the directed heart. I have inclined my heart to do your decrees, he says. And then in the next verse, or the verse before, he says, for they are the joy of my heart. The joy of our heart often goes hand in hand with the direction of our heart. That's what Matir is saying. Joy without obedience is frivolity. Obedience without joy is moralism. So true. The inclined heart and the joyful heart. And uh, Spurgeon again says, Many are inclined to preach, but the psalmist was inclined to practice. Many are inclined to perform ceremonies, but the psalmist was inclined to perform statutes. Many are inclined to obey occasionally, but the psalmist would obey always. And alas, many are inclined for temporary religion, but this godly man was bound for eternity to the end. He would perform the statutes of the Lord and his King even unto the end. Lord, send us such a heavenly inclination of heart as this. Then shall we show that Thou hast quickened and taught us. To this end, create in us a clean heart and daily renew a right spirit within us. For only so shall we incline in the right direction. An inclined heart. So his heart, he's kept himself um, in his, from carelessness, forgetfulness, and heartlessness. And part of it is him inclining his heart, and also part of it is simply finding joy in the Lord and in His ways. That devastating question that's so searching, where is your joy? Where's your joy? So, he guards himself, he binds himself, and he also gives himself another aspect of his commitment. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. Again, Spurgeon says, there can be no value in extorted confessions. God's revenues are not derived from forced taxation, but from free will donation. It's like nobody feels good, right, at tax time, writing your extra check uh, to the taxman. You don't, you don't ever do that with joy. Oh, I'm so thankful to support the federal government. This fills me with such gladness of heart. Especially when you see how much they've taken all year from your, from your paycheck. It's it was a stroke of genius that they actually suck the money out of your check before it comes to you. Because if you had to write the check every month yourself, that would have been revolution a long time ago. Um, but God's givers aren't like that. God loves a cheerful giver. 
And in the Old Testament, the rule was a tenth a tithe, and actually it probably was near 24 to 31 percent when you add up all the different tithes, the yearly tithe and the twice-yearly, every other year, the bi-yearly tithe, and so the biannual tithe. And so scholars reckon it was somewhere between 24 and 31 percent that was given in the Old Testament, though it was supporting both the civil government and the temple, right, the, the revenues coming in. Um, but in the New Testament, those are childish times, like when you leave your children at the door uh, to go out for a date maybe, and your children are at that age when you're leaving them in the house. And when they're young, right, you give them all these rules, right? Don't answer the door. But even more, don't even look out the window. Don't peek around the hall to see who's there. Don't call through the window. Give them a long list of rules because young children are stupid. And you give them all these rules to keep them safe. And then as they get older, you just tell them, don't answer the door, or at least look out first. Make sure it's, you know, the police or somebody. But don't, if you don't know the person, don't answer the door. But you kind of you relax the rules as they get older. And as you go from the Old Testament, you go to all these tithes that were commanded. And in the New Testament, you have the, the gospel. He was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty became rich. And the Lord loves a cheerful giver, having the Lord given his Son can we even think about holding our time and talents and treasure from the Lord? Absolutely not. Our hearts are compelled. And we're not writing uh, the, 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 the tithe check or the, the, tithe, the offering check with some kind of reluctance, but our hearts should be in it as it comes with all of our will, freely, not coerced, not because we have to, but because we get to, as Jim so often delights to say. So, Here's a man, and his calamity leads to commitment. As he's put under pressure, like when you squeeze one of those, squ- those, those uh, um, stress balls in your hand, it'll kind of come out in a, in a certain direction. As you squeeze, it'll come out right in a certain direction. And when the psalmist is squeezed, his heart moves out, and it's towards God, not away from God. Towards obedient, he's committed to God. Calamity leads to commitment, and then his commitment then leads to confidence. As, he's, as he runs in the way of God's commandments, he finds more and more confidence in the God he's committed to. Further in, deeper in, and further up, C.S. Lewis says, as we go further into the Lord, we find that with our commitment grows our confidence. And in particular, the psalmist says, I have someone who leads, and I'm confident I have someone who listens. Someone who leads me, and someone who listens to me. I have someone who leads. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And in fact, that reality predates all of his commitment. He's not in the darkness. He has a word. And that word is a lamp to his feet, the next step, like a man going through a minefield. Where do you put your next foot? It's kind of important if you want to still remain attached to your foot. And so he's going through, and it's a lamp to his feet for each footstep. But it's also a light to his path. Like when you come to the minefield, is it your duty to walk through it? If not, probably shouldn't, right? But sometimes it is. 
And so it's a wonderful thing to know that God leads us both step by step, but also He directs our path. The big picture and uh, the details. It's a wonderful thing. Again, Spurgeon says, we are walkers through the city of this world, and we're often called to go out into its darkness. Let us never venture there without the light-giving word, lest we slip with our feet. Each man should use the word of God personally, practically, and habitually, that he may see his way and see what lies in it. When darkness settles down upon all around me, the word of the Lord, like a flaming torch, reveals my way. Having no fixed lamps in eastern towns, in old time, each passenger carried a lantern with him that he might not fall into the open sewer or stumble over the heaps of odour, which I don't think is very pleasant, which defiled the road. This is the true picture of our path through this dark world. We should not know the way or how to walk in it if the Scripture, like a blazing flame, did not reveal it. One of the most practical benefits of Holy Writ is guidance in the acts of daily life. Scripture. Your Word is a lamp to my feet. And as we make our way into the New Testament, this picture of a written Word is entirely um, translated, you might say, into a living Word. Now, we, the living Word is Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, I've got to be careful. I don't want to put a distance between Jesus and the Bible, because we can't get Jesus without the Bible. It's through the written Word that we have fellowship and intercourse with God's living Word. But it's not just a, a book. It's a person, Jesus. And we come to Him through the book and in the book, Your Word. And this is a man, remember, who lived in the times of prophecy. Here's a man inspired by God um, to write Scripture. But the psalmist doesn't go, well, that's okay for you. You know, you're the hoi polloi. You need the Bible, dear love you. Bless your heart. But I just, I just look up and God tells me, go this way or go that way, right? Um, and God does that occasionally in the Old Testament with David and so forth and so on, but it never removed their need for the Word in the day in and day out difficulties and trials of life. And so here's the psalmist facing calamity, and he finds himself, he commits himself to God, and as he does so in his commitment, he has this confidence, I have someone to lead me, someone to lead, and also someone to listen, someone to listen to my prayers. I am severely afflicted like Israel and Egypt, same word used. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. God listens to my prayer, my prayer for life. 
but he also listens to his own promise. And it's a wonderful thing when you can unite the prayer and the promise together, because God listens to both your prayer and to your promise. It's like the left and the right hand by which we lift ourselves to God in our supplications. For life and also for learning, accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. He's taught. He recognizes his mind is not sharp enough and his commitment is not true enough. He needs God to teach him. I was talking to the session recently about Baxter. Um, I'm going to change his name to Sid, Sermon Illustration Dog. Um, but nonetheless, he does provide a feast of illustrations, and I'm often struck by Baxter's inadequacy, but also mine as a trainer, because he's pretty good. If I have him sit, he'll sit. And then if I throw a ball and say, fetch, he'll fetch, and sometimes bring it back again, sometimes, if he's inclined to, which is not very often. But still, the fetch part he's good at, right? And I was pretty proud of myself, and then I saw one of those Belgian Malinois on, on YouTube, the police train, and this guy, he, had this, he threw this ball and said, free, and the dog's after it, after the dog. But the ball is like, the dog is like totally locked on to the ball, right? And running at 40 miles an hour, and the ball's flying, and he's chasing it. And then he's, he's, in, like, he's like close enough to the ball to smell last week's steak on the master's hand on the ball, right? He's about to get the ball, and the master goes, down! And the dog just drops. And the ball's like right in front of his nose. And the dog stops on the ground, flat, looking at the ball. I thought to myself, Baxter would never do that. If he was, he has his eye on the ball, he's going for it. And he's not, I could say, stop. I could scream at him. I could threaten all kinds of promises. He's not stopping. I could shoot him. Then he would stop. But other than that, he's going for the ball, right? And what's the difference between Baxter and the Malinois? The difference is the trainer. That trainer has taught that dog again and again by ceaseless repetition what to do, what not to do. He also doesn't have children undoing all of his lessons. That's true as well. But it's the trainer teaching the dog. And the psalmist is confident he's got someone to lead him and someone to listen to him, listen to his prayers for life and listening to his prayers for learning, teach me, O God. And in this book, and in the God of this book, we have the most amazing instructor, the Lord himself. And when you go to him and say, Lord, I have this awful problem, I, I find myself loving to sin. And I'm really struggling. I find myself enslaved to various sins and pleasures, find myself full of malice and envy. I'm much better at hating than loving, at hurting than helping. And I need your help, Lord. Teach me. Be to me the one who leads me, the one who listens to me. Listen to my prayer for life, and listen, O Lord, to my prayer for learning, and teach me. And God has given you words like this in the Bible because He means you to use them, because He knows you need them, and He also means to hear them when you do.
And as is always the case, we hear these prayers, and we hear Jesus behind them, don't we? I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Ultimately, we are not received into the Father's presence because we have inclined our heart to perform his statutes forever to the end, but because Jesus inclined his heart to perform God's statutes forever to the end, even if it meant obedience would take him beyond the point of no return into outer darkness where there was no light, only the darkness of infinite justice as his Father meets his Son no longer as Son, but only as sin. And even then, Jesus turns to the Word, Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Turning to Scripture for light in the darkness. And this amazing obedience of Jesus, who was obedient beyond the point of death to the second death and damnation, that's what justifies you, Christian. That's what buys you access not because of your commitment and not because of your confidence, but because of His. Never forget, we stand in our elder brother, or we don't stand at all. And because of Him, we can forget what lies behind, both our sins and our successes, because the one cannot qualify us and the other can't disqualify us, because Jesus has done it all. Psalm 119 belongs to him before it belongs to you. Remember that. Otherwise, it'll crush you when you sing it. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you tonight for your Word. We come and we ask you, O God, that you would be gracious to us as we lean upon you. And how we thank you, O God, that we have someone to lead us and someone to listen to us. And so we pray, our Father, lead us. Send your Son to be our shepherd. Send your Holy Spirit to be our guard. Protect us from the devil. Protect us from the world. Protect us from our own worst instincts, which always trip us up. And keep us kept, O God, or we shall not be kept at all. For Jesus' sake, amen.